the true answer, the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And I think that helps reframe it a little bit because what you need to realize is that habits are not a finish line to be crossed, right? It's not like, oh, I'll be healthy for 30 days and then if I do that, then I'll be done with it. They're a lifestyle to be lived. Welcome to the Power Hour, the weekly podcast that will motivate you to pursue your passion and to achieve success. I'm Adrienne Herbert, international speaker, fitness coach, Adidas global ambassador and entrepreneur. Each week, I'll be talking to today's leading coaches, creatives, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, morning routines and rules to live by. The Power Hour is all about taking just one hour each day to help you improve your life and unlock your full potential. Whether you want to build a business, write a book, run a marathon, or maybe you're just looking for a spark of inspiration, the Power Hour is going to help you get there faster. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today's guest is a journalist and New York Times bestselling author whose book, Atomic Habits, has sold over 1 million copies around the world. His work will help you to create better habits, enhance your personal and professional performance, become a more strategic decision maker, and even optimize your health. I'm so happy to be joined today by James Clear. Hello, good to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, James. I've been looking forward to this for well, for so long since we got this in the diary. I read Atomic Habits last year and since then I've recommended it to so many friends and colleagues and then listened to it again on Audible. And I think that the the topic of habits uh, is just so fascinating. I've always, I'm always trying to better understand what drives people to do what they do and why we all do different things, like what motivates one person to do something won't motivate somebody else but we also have some kind of shared universal truths. So I guess to start, could you tell us why you first wanted to explore human behavior and specifically habit formation? Sure. So, you know, as you mentioned, habits are a fairly universal topic. I mean, we all have them. We all are building them, even if you're not thinking about it, even if you aren't aware of how habits work, you know, your your brain is looking to solve the problems of life with less energy and effort than usual. And so, If there's something that you're building anyway, uh, I think it makes sense to try to focus on how to optimize those or how to learn how to best do them. Um, I came into habits more from the practitioner side than as a researcher. So I sort of stumbled into them in a sense. Um, I played a variety of sports growing up. My uh, sophomore year of high school, I had this serious injury where I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And the, the fallout from that was significant. I, you know, fractured bones in my face and eye sockets. I had multiple seizures. I couldn't drive for the next nine months. So it was a very serious injury to recover from. And during that time, I had to focus on small habits because that's all I could do. Uh, you know, so they were things that seem kind of insignificant, uh, when mentioning them now, like going to bed at the same hour each night or, This was the first time when um, after physical therapy, I started uh, going to the gym and exercising consistently at first once or twice a week and then eventually three or four days. And individually, these habits didn't really mean a whole lot, but collectively and over time, they started to compound and kind of build on each other. And they gave me this sense of control over my life again, something I felt like I had lost after the injury. So... Uh, I ended up having a a successful baseball career and making it back onto the field and kind of rebounding from that injury. 
and habits were a big part of that. And then it was only a few years later, once I started writing and researching habits and learning how they worked, that I started to put a language to what I had already experienced. And so, you know, at the time, I wouldn't have described it this way. But looking back, I was finding ways to get 1% better each day, which is a big part of my philosophy. I was finding ways to be consistent and show up, even if it was less than I had hoped to do, uh, I was able to do something. And um, so those experiences kind of were my introduction to habits. And then later, I learned about the science and the research behind it and started writing about it more extensively. Right. Wow. It's fascinating. And when you mentioned then about the 1% and kind of the consistency element, I think that's something that I definitely think a lot more about now than I used to. And, you know, I work in the wellness and the fitness space and I hear a lot this message that when it comes to creating healthy habits or when it comes to people getting fit or getting active, you know, the getting started is the hardest part. And I think I used to say that myself, you know, like getting started for so many people is so hard. But actually, I think what I've come to learn is that the consistency part is actually harder. I think it, sometimes we can get, you know, initially excited by something and we can start something new. But I think the consistency and as you mentioned, the 1% improvements and, and you being patient, I guess, can can often be harder than getting started. Yeah, there are kind of two big battles with habits. You know, the first one is getting started, finding some way to, to get off square one. And the second one is what you're mentioning here, consistency and sticking with it. And this is what you're mentioning. This is one of the reasons why, you know, building better systems is kind of a core part of my philosophy, because if you want habits to stick for the long run, you know, the phrase that I like to use is you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. And so often when we talk about habits and behavior change or really achievement and success in any kind of broad sense, we talk about goals. We talk about you need to be more ambitious, you need to have a bigger vision, you need to set you know, 10x your output, whatever. And I think the reality is uh, having the goal is actually the easy part. Uh, most people are familiar with having goals. And in most fields, the winners and the losers, so to speak, often have the same goals. Um, you know, if you have a job opening and 100 candidates apply, presumably every candidate has the goal of getting the job right? Or uh, at the Olympics, presumably every athlete has the goal of winning the gold medal. And so it's not the goal that separates them. It's the system that they follow. It's the way they prepare, the type of practice and training that they do, the coaching that they have, the, you know, all of the things that go into that. And if you start to break those systems down, what you see is that they're often a collection of daily habits. That is the system that you're running or the habits that you're following. And each one is like a little gear in this overall machine of the system that you're running. And if there is ever a gap between your desired outcome and your daily habits, if there's ever a gap between your goal and your system, your daily habits will always win. Uh, almost by definition, whatever results you have right now are sort of the natural byproduct of whatever system you've been running, whatever habits you've been following for, say, the last six months or the last year. So... We also badly want the results to change in life. You know, we also badly want better outcomes, but really the results are not actually the thing that needs to change. It's actually the habits behind them that need to shift. It's kind of like fix the inputs and the outputs will fix themselves. Mm, absolutely. I really hope people are taking note of what you're saying, because I think that just framing it in that clear way, I think is really, really helpful. 
So often when people hear the word habit, I think they have this assumption that a habit is a bad thing. You know, people often say, you know, it's just negative, the negativity associated with bad habits such as smoking or eating junk food. But habits, as you mentioned, are not just, you know, defined as good and bad and they can actually help us to improve our lives and to achieve these goals. So could you break down for us, I guess, in the simplest way? what a habit actually is and how we can make sure that our habits are working for us, not against us. Yeah, I, I mean, I think what you're describing here is something we all have felt, which is that habits are a double-edged sword. You know, they can either build you up or they can cut you down. They can compound for you or against you. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so important to understand what a habit is and how it works so that you can be the architect of your habits and not like the victim of them. A lot of people feel like the victim of their habits, like they're happening to them, you know, oh, I do it before I even realize it, whatever. And I think if you can break a habit down into these smaller pieces and kind of understand these fundamental parts, then you can understand how it works. So you're a little more certain about the process, but you also have multiple places to intervene. So the way that I like to divide a habit or describe it is in four different stages. Um, and so those four stages are cue, craving, response, and reward. Cue, craving, response, and reward. And that four-step framework, so let me give you a quick example of what it looks like in practice. Let's say you walk into the kitchen and you see a plate of cookies on the counter. Well, that's a visual cue that starts your habit of eating the cookie. So cue, you see it. The second stage, the craving, is it's really a prediction that your brain makes. It's kind of like your mind thinks, oh, that'll be sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. And it's actually that prediction that motivates you. So you, you see the cue, you notice something, and then there's a prediction in your mind. You experience this craving, this motivation to walk over, pick it up and take a bite. That's the response. And then the fourth and final stage is the reward, which is, oh, it is in fact sweet, sugary, tasty, enjoyable. Now, not every experience in life has a reward. Right? Sometimes things have a consequence or a cost. Sometimes they're just kind of neutral and don't mean a whole lot. But if a behavior is not rewarding, it's unlikely to become a habit. And so you, your brain needs this kind of positive emotional signal that says, hey, that felt good. You should do this again. The next time you see that cue, repeat those steps. And so those four stages are kind of like a feedback loop. And the more that you go through them, the more you kind of train your brain and learn Oh, each time I see that cue, I should experience this motivation and I should take that action and I'll get this reward. And so collectively, they kind of work together to teach yourself um, which experiences you should act upon and which experiences you should avoid. Now, I want to add one more thing to this, which is you mentioned that often we think about habits as being bad, uh, but they can also be good. And so a question people sometimes have is, well, if this is bad for me, why do I repeat it? Or, you know, if it's such a bad habit and I know it's not good, then how come I keep coming back to it? And I think the answer is in the timing. And what I mean by that is pretty much every behavior in life produces multiple outcomes across time. So the immediate outcome is off for a bad habit is often favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is it's great. It's sweet. It's sugary. It's tasty. It's enjoyable. It's only the ultimate outcome that's unfavorable. And for good habits, it's often the reverse. Like the immediate outcome of going to the gym, particularly like the first week that you go back or something, isn't a whole lot. You're, if anything, you're sore. Your body looks the same in the mirror. Um, it's only a year or two later that you have the changes that you were hoping to get. And so that gap between the immediate reward and the ultimate reward, the immediate outcome and the ultimate outcome, that I think is a good way to define what is a good habit and what is a bad habit. Your bad habits 
the cost of your bad habits is in the future, right? They, they feel good in the present, but the cost of your good habits is in the present and it's not until the future that they get you what you want. And so that difference between um, whether it pays off immediately or pays off in the long run, I think describes the gap between good and bad. Yes, absolutely. That's something that I try to remind myself of. Actually, when I think about, as you said, the most favorable outcome in the moment, we all know it's like, okay, this is even just the human instinct to be like, this is the easy option, or this is the nice thing to do, or this is the comfortable thing. But actually, as you said, often the thing that you really want, which is the goal, that is the thing that you're working towards, that is that future thing, that is, as you said, the the least favorable outcome in the moment, that you have to kind of keep that in the front of your mind. It's like, what do you want now? What do you actually want overall, you know? And A lot of it comes back to delaying gratification. That's kind of the, you know, one of the central things to get your habits to work for you is thinking about doing what's best for your future self rather than doing what you want in the moment. Absolutely. I think I read a, a really great quote around that delayed gratification and it basically said that the difference between successful people and non-successful people is that successful people do the thing even when they don't want to do it as opposed to the non-successful person just doing the thing when you feel like it. Uh, but moving on from that, I guess, you know, it is human nature for us to create habits and create routines. Even, I think, as children, you know, we we like to have routines as we like to know what to expect, you know, what's coming up. You know, I have a son myself, and I know that having structure and having, like, almost like step-by-step things to follow, they know what to expect, they know what's coming, and and we like that, right? It's in our in our genes. So many people would describe themselves as saying, you know, oh, I'm just useless at this or, oh, I can't do these things. I, I, you know, I have terrible habits or the reverse when people will say, oh, I've got a very addictive personality. You know, they'll describe themselves in that way. So do you think that the, our ability to create and sustain habits is actually down to gen- genetics? Is there a personality trait going on in there or is it more due to influence and our environment? Well, so definitely both factors play a role. Um, And to your first point about genes and personality, I have a chapter later in the book where I talk about how, you know, genes and talent play a role in that process. I think there's still a lot to be learned uh, in that area. I think it's uh, an area that's ripe for kind of new research and additional insights. Um, What I've kind of unearthed so far, what I, I feel like I understand from it, There are many different ways to measure personality, uh, but the most robust or agreed upon way in academic circles tends to be the big five, which maps personality on five different spectrums. And the one that most people are familiar with is introversion on one side, extroversion on the other. But there are other ones like agreeableness, for example, which measures measures how like warm and kind and open hearted you are. Um, And then there's things like neuroticism or um, openness to experience. And these different spectrums, you can, um, all five of them have been tied to the underlying genetic code in some way. So it does seem to be that there is some kind of genetic link to the personality that gets expressed. Now, of course, you know, social environment, physical environment, all that influences things as well. And we all change based on the room that we're in, right? Like you may be the funny one when you're hanging out with friends, but if you go to a dinner with five professional comedians, you wouldn't be the funny one anymore. So, um, Personality, the definition I like is it's the quality of characteristics that you carry with you from room to room so that it doesn't change based on the environment. And uh, certainly there are elements of that that influence your habits. Like, for example, you could imagine someone who is high in, say, agreeableness and is really kind and warm hearted. It might be easier for them to build a habit of writing thank you notes or of organizing social events with friends because that just feels like it's kind of aligns with their natural personality. 
So there's definitely a quality there. Um, sometimes people think when you talk about genes, it's like, oh, well, you know, if it's all genetic, then like, why bother? It's just destiny. Like, why would I put effort in? But I actually don't think that's the right takeaway. Um, genes don't tell you not to work hard. They just tell you where to work hard. Like they, they give you a better idea of your strengths and weaknesses so that you can utilize other strategies to kind of help out with that. Um, conscientiousness is another one of the spectrums. And people who are high in conscientiousness tend to be really orderly and organized. But if you, so if you're low in that, you're more spontaneous and you tend to not be the kind of person who is like just going to remember to do it. Uh, and so having a really well-designed environment might be really helpful for you to, uh, to stick to better habits because it's something that doesn't come to you naturally. So um, in that way, your genes and personality kind of inform your strategy uh, and help you make better choices in that way. Um, now you also mentioned, so that, that's on the personality side. You also mentioned that, uh, you know, what about environment? What about things like that? And that plays a huge role. And in fact, I think it's often the better place to focus to start because you can't really say one way or another, whether it's just your genes or your personality, if you haven't optimized your environment first, you know, maybe you would be perfectly capable of doing something. Let's just try to set the environment up for success. And that comes down to a variety of different things, but it can be stuff like making good habits, the more obvious choice in the environment, making them easier and the path of least resistance. Uh, the social environment plays a big role. So the, the punchline that I like there is you want to join a group to join tribes where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal around those people, it's going to be much easier for you to stick with. So there are a variety of environment design choices that you can make that will help habits to stick, regardless of what your particular personality happens to be. I'm someone who will always say, I'm an all or nothing person. I'm a hundred or I'm nothing. I'm not like mm -hmm. I dabble. I'm kind of like, if I'm in, I'm in. If I'm if I'm having the brownie, I'm having the whole brownie. I'm not wrapping up half for tomorrow. Like who, who does that? So I'm definitely all or nothing. But I think this idea, as you said, around people kind of using their genetics or their, their natural tendencies to kind of use it as an excuse. It's like, well, this is just how I am and that's it. And even with the, you know, when you talked about conscientiousness, I, I think about people who are late and people who are really punctual and they kind of find lateness to be really rude and one of my friends she's actually Japanese and in her culture it's very very rude to be late so she is very conscientious about being early and being on time and she actually sees lateness as she's offended by people being late whereas another friend of mine who's always late she's a very outgoing extroverted person and she describes lateness uh, her lateness is due to optimism because she says optimistic people assume that they can do everything they're like yeah i'll have enough time to do those things wash my hair get the uber turn they just assume they'll be able to do it all and then when they find themselves 30 minutes late they're surprised even though they're always late so it's also interesting how different people frame things differently to kind of agree with their personality for sure. I tend toward the second one, which is, uh, yeah, always being optimistic and be like, ah, oh, just always try to fit one more thing in. Um, and so finding ways to design your life so that you have margin of safety kind of built in, in terms of time, um, is helpful finding, like I've even noticed something like, uh, if I'm going to meet someone, it's much better if I schedule the meeting at a coffee shop, that's five minutes away rather than 15 minutes away. Because if it's five minutes away, I can make it there on time. If it's 15 and I always try to, you know, cram in one more thing, then I may be five minutes late. And so uh, once you learn yourself more, and I think that's really the big takeaway from this discussion of personality, is that self-awareness uh, helps frame your strategy. 
understanding yourself and your strengths and weaknesses can improve your ability to make good choices and to design habits that work for you and your lifestyle. I'm also the same as you, James. So I talk in my book about how I now set false deadlines. So I had a false deadline for today's recording because I don't want to be late or a false deadline for some important work so that the day before, even seven days before, I know this is when it has to be done to give me that kind of window, um, that buffer of time, because like you, I'll know I'll try and have a few more things on the go. Uh, So I did a lot of research about habits when I was writing the book and it came up again and again without a clear conclusion. This same question from everyone that I talked to about habits, which was, Adrienne, tell us, how long does it take to form a new habit? So if I want to start getting up early and running or if I want to start, you know, um, reading more or whatever the habit is they're like if I do it for a week or is it 30 days some people say it's 90 days and everything that I read kind of gave me uh, you know good backed up why it would take this long but it was very inconclusive so I'm hoping that James you're the expert on habits that you may be able to shed some light on this of course so yeah you hear all kinds of things 21 days 30 days 90 days Um, A common one that's going around right now is 66 days uh, because there was one study that showed that on average it took about 66 days to build a habit. Um, However, in this, as soon as I explain this answer, I think it'll make sense to to people. Obviously, it depends and it depends on a variety of factors. So one is the difficulty of the habit. So what this study found was that um, if it's something really simple, like drinking a glass of water at lunch each day, uh, that may only take a few weeks before it gets established. But if it's something much more difficult, like uh, going for a long run after work every day, well, that might take seven or eight or nine months before it becomes part of your normal lifestyle routine. Um, But you can also imagine that the same habit changes depending on the environment that you're in, which is what we were just talking about. So let's say you want to build that habit of going for a run after work every day. If you grow up in a family of athletes or live in, uh, you know, a flat with a bunch of friends who are, um, you know, also running too, it's much easier to do that because the desired behavior is the normal behavior. But if you're surrounded by people who aren't working out or don't have an interest in that, then you're kind of swimming upstream. And so now you feel like, you know, it's a little bit harder than usual. So now we're talking about the same habit, but it may take a longer amount of time depending on where you're at. I think though the, the way that I like to ultimately settled on the answer, I ultimately settled on the way I like to frame it is that the true answer, the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And I think that helps reframe it a little bit because what you need to realize is that habits are not a finish line to be crossed, right? It's not like, oh, I'll be healthy for 30 days. And then if I do that, then I'll be done with it. Um, they're a lifestyle to be lived. And so if you look at it in that way, you start to realize that you need to look for a small change, a non-threatening change, a sustainable change, something that you can integrate into your new lifestyle and make it part of your new normal. And if you're if you're open to that, then you can start approaching habits in a way that can really get them to stick. Um, but it's not it's not like a sprint that you need to do for 90 days and then, oh, now I'm productive and I don't have to think about it anymore. Now I'm, you know, uh, healthy and I don't have to think about it anymore. It's a, it's a long-term change. It's part of your new life. Um, and so that's definitely the way that I like to think about it. Okay, great. Well, when you've mentioned, you know, new life, actually, you know, this year, I mean, how could we not talk about this year? You know, 2020 has been, I mean, 
an insane year for most people. And I think lockdown has meant that for a lot of people, they've had to change their daily routines. So most people right now here in London anyway, they might be working from home. They are probably working out at home. They could be homeschooling their kids. Everything's changed for them. So they no longer have the same points throughout their day. Maybe they don't commute anymore. Maybe they don't have one hour lunch break at a set time with their colleagues. So I think for some people, they've used this time as an opportunity to create a whole new habit. They've created a new daily routine. And I recently delivered a talk. It was a virtual keynote and the Q&A at the end, the questions that were coming up the most were actually, if people have created a new habit around daily movement around exercise they were kind of thinking well when my new when my other responsibilities of life come back how am I going to be able to continue with this routine so they've they've created new habits during this period and now they want to know that when how they can keep that going when the demands on their schedule and life changes do you have any advice for them yeah there you know anytime the environment changes in a big way behavior changes in a big way and a lot of people have changed their environment in very significant ways this year. You know, it used to be that you went into the office, but now your kitchen table is your office. Or, um, you know, it used to be that you had some separation from the items that were in your pantry, but now you can walk around the corner and snack all day long. And so uh, it's easy to imagine that if, well, let me, let me say this too. This is, I think is important. Often when we define what a habit is, usually people will bring up definitions like, oh, it's a behavior that you do automatically or mindlessly or, you know, something quick and, and automatic. But a different definition of a habit and one that I like to use a lot is they are uh, behaviors that are tied to a particular context or tied to a particular environment. And so there is no behavior outside of an environment. They all happen in some type of context. And so if the context changes, the habits change too. And uh, you should, I think, one helpful thing to do as we kind of go through this and it becomes more of a new normal to work at home or to, you know, deal with a variety of different changes due to coronavirus, um, to ask yourself, what is the obvious choice in this new environment? What is the easier, attractive choice in this new environment? And can I redesign things to make the good habits the more obvious, available, visible, easy to see thing, the path of least resistance? And if you look around your, your home and office, you may find that uh, the habits that are the path of least resistance right now are not the ones that serve you the most. And so you can make some changes to try to improve that. One example I like to give is, you know, a lot of people feel like they too, watch too much television, but walk into any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? Right? It's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? Um, and so there are a spectrum of choices you can make there. Uh, you know, you could take the TV and put it inside a wall unit or a cabinet so it's behind doors and you're less likely to see it. Or you could unplug the TV after each use and only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch. So you can't just like turn it on mindlessly and find something. You could um, take the remote control and put it inside a drawer and put a book in its place. And individually, choices like that aren't going to make a radical difference. But collectively, if you make a dozen or two dozen or 50 little choices like that, that all make the good habit, the path of least resistance, suddenly it's much easier to do the healthy and productive thing. And so I think as, you know, things have shifted during this time and as we find ourselves in new environments, we need to keep asking ourselves, what is the obvious choice in this environment? Is it the healthy thing? Is the productive thing? Is it the thing I want? Um, another small example, I wanted to start reading more consistently and uh, I knew I was going to be at home more since we were quarantine, lockdown, and everything else. And so 
uh, I started buying physical books and sprinkling them around the house. Like I've got five on the desk next to me here. I have a couple by the bed, a couple on the coffee table, whatever. And then um, on my phone, I moved all of my apps to the second screen and I took Audible and I put it on the home screen so that it'd be the first thing I see when I open up the phone just to remind me to listen to, to another audiobook. So those are small choices, but again, they try to make the good habit the path of least resistance. And so the more that you can do that with your physical and digital spaces, uh, I think the more you'll find that these habits are able to stick um, as we move forward and, you know, kind of re-enter society and get into some kind of new normal, whatever that may look like. Yeah, well, there's two things I was thinking then when you were talking, James, I didn't want to interrupt you. One was about Audible because I'm such an Audible fan and I listen to hours and hours of books and also podcasts every day. And sometimes people will say to me, they're like, how do you listen to so many books and so many podcast episodes every time I tell you about that you've listened to it already? And I always say to people about that, the small habit. So I also have it on the home screen, but I made it a habit to listen to Audible basically if I'm like, even if I think it's going to be three minutes, because often it mm. ends up being more. So it might just be, yeah, like sitting in an Uber and you think you're five minutes away, listen for five minutes. Or if I'm cooking or if I'm walking to pick up my son from school, like those short moments where you think, oh it's only five minutes often people say to me oh I don't have an hour to listen to this book but I say to them I'm like well maybe you have seven minutes and 12 minutes and 15 and actually throughout the day you probably listen I probably listen to two hours in all these different moments so I think the prompt is really good and then the second thing when you mentioned about like covering the tv or, or moving things around I think Often it's easy for people to hear advice like that and kind of go, oh, yeah, okay." But actually doing it and trying something out for a week or two, I think is so powerful. And and I have, as I mentioned, a young son. And I know when you were talking then, I was thinking of him. And I know that if he walks in and sees the Nintendo Switch, it's just, you know, over on the side, he's going to, his eye will be drawn to it straight away. It's like that question, can I go on my Switch? What can I play? But as you say, if when he finishes playing with it, it's like, okay, you've played on that, pack it away, take the plug, put it in the box, put it in the cupboard. it's like a whole day before he's going to get it out and go on it again. So I think for parents yep. listening, especially if you're at home and your children are at home more, I think that's, yeah, I think a really good thing to just at least try, not just listen and kind of go, oh, sounds good. Actually implement it this week and see if it makes a difference. Yeah, something to add there. I think those are great points. Um, it's surprising how much you can uh, curtail or reduce a habit just by making it less obvious like that. Like I one of the putting the video game console away is a, a great example. Um, another one that I have used recently is I try to leave my phone in another room until lunch each day. And if I have it next to me, I'm like everybody else. I will check it every three minutes, right? Like it's just right there. But if I leave it in another room, I have a home office. And so I'm only 30 seconds away, but I never go get it. And it's always surprising me because it's like, well, did I want it or not? Like in the one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes when it was next to me. But in another sense, I never go work to go get it. It's never worth 30 seconds of, of effort. And so it's kind of like a lot of our bad habits are actually just things we do when we're bored. They're like the default that we go to when we have a free moment. And so changing the environment in a little way, making it less obvious, you'll often see that reduce. And that actually leads into what I thought was a great example from you about your kind of default behavior of listening to Audible. I think the question to ask yourself is, what do I do when I have nothing to do? And so all those in-between moments where people just check their phone for three minutes instead of pressing play on Audible, or they you know, are in a line for seven minutes and they're just kind of waiting uh, for the next thing to happen, a lot of that time gets wasted throughout the day and we don't realize how much of it, like you said, accumulates into you know, an hour or two of listening. And 
I think the key is to have, it just has to be one thing, but one good default that you always go to when you have nothing else to do. Um, for me recently, it's become working on my next book. I you know, have this manuscript I need to work on. If I ever don't know what to do, I just work on that. If I have nothing to do, I just open that up. And um, it's surprising how much that can accumulate over time as your kind of audible and uh, reading experience shows as well. Yeah, absolutely. James, I'm fascinated when you're talking. I'm just like nodding my head along thinking that this is so great and I could talk to you all day. So as an expert on this topic, I guess before I move on to talking to you about the Power Hour, I want to know, I mean, you mentioned, I guess, a few throughout, but I want to know which three atomic habits you have, because I know that you're intentional about your habits. So which three like kind of habits would you say are the the ones that you are intentional about the most every single day you repeat them the most and why? Yeah. Uh, so I'll, yeah, I'll give you three. So, uh, the first one is related to health. So this is exercise is kind of like my keystone habit in the sense, And I, for me, it's strength training. Um, and if I do that, then I know that the, the rest of my day kind of falls into place. Like it sort of has this ripple effect where, yeah, I get the benefits of working out, but also I tend to have an hour where I kind of have this like post-workout high where you're thinking very clearly, Um, I tend to eat better when I'm working out. If I don't work out, then I kind of like devolve into a slob everywhere. But if I'm working out, then it's like, I don't want to waste it. And I tend to eat better. Um, If I train hard, then I sleep better that night, which means the next day I wake up with better energy. So it just kind of influences a lot of areas. So that's, that's definitely one. And for me, it has become as simple as if I don't have any time, like I did this a lot uh, the year I launched Atomic Habits because I, I was just very tight on time. If I couldn't get a full workout in, then I would at least go and I would squat and I would just do one exercise, but at least I did that. And, um, I've had quite a few workouts that have been like that, but I have to get under the bar. I got to do something. So that's, that's one. The, the second one, this one's more work related is reading. Um, for a long time, I thought, oh, if I really want my writing to be good, I need to just write more. I need to spend more hours on it. I need to push harder, but actually pretty much every good idea that I have is sparked by reading something interesting. And so if I ever don't feel like I have the energy to write, what I actually need to do is read uh, because that will like give me the, the inspiration and get me going again. So I already mentioned trying to leave books around the house and audible and so on, but I try to do a variety of things to make reading really easy in the environments that I'm in so that I always sort of have this next burst of inspiration coming. Um, and then the third one is one that has been good for me, but that I've also struggled with. So I'll explain both sides of that. Um, I have this kind of cardinal rule where I don't cheat myself on sleep. And so that's been really essential. I, I make sure that I sleep, I would say at least eight hours every night, um, particularly if I'm training heavy. And um, I'm good about that. I'm good about getting enough sleep. The part that I struggle with is getting to bed on time. So I'll often get this kind of second wind where around like say nine or 10 PM, I'm like, well, maybe I'll just check email for a minute or send a few off or, you know, do a little bit of work. And of course it's never just a few emails, right? It's like you turn around, it's midnight or 1am or something. You're still working. And you know, if it's 1am and I'm going to get eight hours of sleep, I'm not waking up till nine. And I know that I do much better when I wake up early. And so there's this constant tension between making sure I get in bed by say 10 um, and getting up early versus, uh, going to bed too late. So anyway, but those are three big ones for me. And I know that if I get those three, right, if I'm sleeping well, I'm training consistently and I'm reading consistently, a lot of good things kind of flow from that. And so those sort of, I would call those more foundational habits for me. They're things that kind of set the stage for me to do good work and show up in a good way. 
Yes, so many of the things that you just mentioned we're going to talk about for sure probably in the power hour section. But one thing I want to ask you, and this is, I think, sometimes an unpopular opinion, which I have. Would you say that those three things you just said are your non-negotiables? Would you say that they're non-negotiable? Because when Yeah, I... that's, I mean, those are... Every, it's different for everybody what those things should should be, what those non-negotiable items non-negotiable items should be. But you know, for me, like writing is my job, and so reading, you know, for many people, reading is a leisure, and it is it's fun and leisurely for me as well. But yeah, it's it is pretty non-negotiable in the sense that if I want to do good work, I need to be doing that. Hmm. So um, yeah, there there are some things that I don't frame them as non-negotiables, but I, I do think they fit into that category in the sense that you're you're using the term. Because mm, for me, I definitely, I do frame them that way for myself personally, because I know that if something is non-negotiable, it's important, i.e., like I said, turning up to work on time or, I don't know, yeah. picking up your child from school at a certain time is non-negotiable. You're not going to go, right. you know what? I don't feel like doing that right now. So the reason I use the word with myself, non-negotiable, is because if I know, for example, I'm you know, an endurance runner, I train for marathons and next year my first ultra marathon I know that standing on the start line of that race I want to be prepared I want to have trained the best I could I want to have slept well fueled well all of those things for months so the reason I say to people about like pick some habits make them non-negotiable is because as we discussed earlier the end goal and the end outcome requires those you know those immediate decisions and choices every day so as soon as I make them non-negotiable I just takes out the decision element it's no longer like do I want to do this today or could I move it to tomorrow or maybe Saturday's a better day I'm just like Adrienne it's non-negotiable get your shoes on get out the door but for some people they're like oh no you can't you know there's no element of listen to the body or like sometimes you don't feel inspired to do the work and sometimes you know it's kind of like a bit harsh for people but I'm like sometimes you don't feel inspired to do the work but you still have to do the work well, this is, and I, I definitely agree with those points. You know, like for me, uh, I don't decide to work out on Monday at five. That's just what happens at that time. Like there, there is no decision. It's that's just what I'm doing. And so, in that sense, uh, how you're describing it, yeah, it's it's definitely non-negotiable. I think that this comes back to a deeper point or a, a bigger principle that people struggle with, which is many people feel like what they lack is motivation, but what they really lack is clarity. Um, you know, like you have a lot of clarity around when you're going to be training or what you're going to be doing with these non-negotiable things. It's not really about whether you're motivated to do it. It's just that you're very clear about where exactly it exists in your life and your schedule. And there are days when you don't feel motivated, but because you have such clarity, you still show up and, and do the work. And, um, so I think a lot of the time, this comes down to, well, it comes down to a variety of things, but one is knowing what you want. And I think a lot of people know what they want in a broad sense. You know, they may know, oh, I'd like to be healthy or fit or have more money or whatever, but they don't know what they want precisely. Uh, and the more precisely you can define that, the better. And then the second part, once you know what you want is you have to know where it lives. You have to give it time and space in your calendar. And once you know like when and where this is going to occur, which is something I talk about more in, I think, chapter five of the book, um, it's much easier to stick to the habit because it's already decided. It's not up to motivation. It's just, as you said, a non-negotiable. Yeah, absolutely. Wicked. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the Power Hour. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So regular listeners of this show will know all about my power hour, so I won't revisit it again, but it's early and it is structured and it is intentional. So James, I'd love to know, you kind of mentioned already, but on a regular day, ideal day, what time do you get up in the morning and what does the first hour of your day include? Well, so on an ideal day, I'm probably getting up sometime in the seven o'clock hour, probably seven or seven thirty. On a regular day, I'm probably getting up sometime in the eight o'clock hour, eight or eight thirty, something like that. Um, but, uh, anyway, so whatever it is, I wake up, uh, I usually eat my first meal around noon. Uh, so I have been intermittent fasting at various times for the last, I don't know, five to eight years. Um, so, uh, anyway, usually I'll wake up, I'll take a shower and get dressed, grab a, grab a glass of water. And then I start writing. And as I mentioned, I leave, uh, my phone in another room until lunch each day. And so those first like four hours or so before lunch are the time for me to work on my agenda. Uh, rather than kind of getting distracted and, and putting out fires and working on everybody else's agenda. And then the afternoons are more time for for other things, time for interviews like this or, you know, answering emails or doing different uh, different stuff that needs to get done. Um, and then usually I, you know, I do that until, I don't know, five or six. And then uh, that's usually when I go to the gym and train. And um, so I get that time in, go for a walk maybe. I may go for a walk around the afternoon as well, around lunch. Um and, uh, and then afterward in the evening, I usually hang out with my wife and we just kind of, you know, we'll watch something together or do something together. Um, and, uh, sometimes after like nine or so, uh, as I mentioned, I get that second wind and I kind of do a second batch of work from like maybe nine to 11 or something like that. But, uh, it's pretty flexible and I, I don't have to do that on any given day. Um, I feel pretty good about my schedule. Actually, I'm starting in the last like year, I've started to settle into it more. It's weird how long it takes. You think you would figure it out earlier. Maybe I'm just a slow learner, but you know, it took me like two years to figure out how to manage myself. And I'm about 10 years. This is, uh, this will be my 10th year as an entrepreneur. Um, and it's only now that I feel like I'm started to got it figured, uh, get the daily schedule figured out. So I don't know, it's always changing and adjusting a little bit, but those are kind of the broad strokes. I love that. And I think so many listeners of this show will love that too, for many reasons. One, because you give people hope, as you said, you know, like 10 years in and you're like, oh, now I've got it down as opposed to 10 months in when people are like, why can't I get this together? <laughs> Two, I think because you do not berate yourself. Whenever I speak to people who don't get up, like I get up at 5.30 every day. So then if other people get up at that time, it's almost like they they feel like this kind of badge of honor whereas if they get up later they're like oh you know I should or you said then sometimes it's seven sometimes it's eight that's just how it is that's what works uh, and then the third thing was when you mentioned before about being disciplined about sleep you know it's important you know you're not kind of promoting you know I think this entrepreneurial dream of like you know work hustle hustle harder you know forget about sleep if you want it because someone else is going to outwork you and actually the reality is that well two things one is that sleep is incredibly important and we know that there's more science and things backing that up but two is what you described about having being like disciplined at the time you need to go to bed. Like, I feel like that requires more discipline. When people ask me, oh, Adrian, how do you get up at half past five? I'm like, guys, that, that's the easy bit. If you can have that ninja discipline at 9.30 to 
get off yep. your tech, to get upstairs, to go to bed. That's the bit that took me longer. It's even now I can get up fine. I'm, yeah, it's a habit. I get up early, but going to bed, there's always one more thing. So yeah, is what do you what do you do? Do you have any cutoff times? And like, what do you do when? Yeah, I guess to resist that urge to just 15 more minutes, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know if this resonates you with uh, having a, a your son, but um, the thing that that finally got me to switch was getting a dog. Um, that was the, because the dog was going to get up at seven and go for a walk anyway, and so that was the thing that finally got me to do it. Because if you you can have a couple days in a row where you're getting up at you know getting up seven or five thirty or whatever it is, um, and uh, if you didn't get in bed early the night before, then you can only do that a couple days before you're like, all right, this is just not sustainable. I'm exhausted. I need to get in bed earlier, and then then you have enough motivation to do it consistently. Um, so. But what's interesting about both of those examples is something in the environment changed and it changed in a permanent way. Um, and so that I think is is something to consider that whenever you have permanent lifestyle changes, having a child, getting a dog, getting married, moving to a new city, taking on a new job, getting pregnant, these are things that you often see huge behavioral shifts around um, because you have to accommodate it because it's going to be there again the next day and the day after that and so on. And a lot of the behavioral shifts that people try to make are temporary. And so how can you find a way to make this more permanent? And that, you know, again, that's what I mentioned earlier about habits are not a finish line to be crossed. They're a lifestyle to be lived. And so um, when you're forced to live a new lifestyle, yeah, the behavior often shifts in a more meaningful way. Absolutely. James, I think so many people listening to this episode will know you, will know your work, will probably have read the book. But if they haven't, before I ask you my closing question, can you give us a reminder of where we can find out more of your work and get the book Atomic Habits? Sure. Yeah. So um, I wrote Atomic Habits, depending on how you define it, it took me between three and five years to write. Um, it was kind of my best attempt at summarizing all of the science and research of how habits work. But then also, and this is, I think, the thing that makes the book kind of unique, figuring out the best way to make that practical and actionable. How do I actually decide what to do and implement it to build a good habit or to break a bad one? So uh, if you want to learn more about it and kind of build on this, this conversation that we've had, uh, you can just go to atomichabits.com and uh, you can find the book and all the links there. It's on Amazon and all the, you know, all the other places you would buy books as well. But uh, anyway, so feel free to check that out. And then um, if you're interested in some of my other work and writing, uh, probably the best place to go is to join my newsletter or to check out uh, the website. So that's all at jamesclear.com. And uh, you can click on articles and poke around and see, you know, what topics are, are interesting to you. Uh, and my, my weekly newsletters there as well, if you're interested in kind of getting a short summary each, uh, each week. Brilliant. Thank you. And I'll make sure to put a link to that in our notes as well. So my closing question, which I asked to each guest is all around time. So for me, the power hour has revolutionized my life. And when I speak to people about living with a sense of urgency and impermanence and not putting things off, they say, oh, Adrian, I'd love to do that if I had more time or one day when I have more time, I'm going to do those things. So if you were granted one extra hour of every single day, there's now 25 hours in your day, what would you use the extra hour to do? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think I would probably pick reading. Uh, and the reason that I picked that is because reading is sort of a meta habit in the sense that your priorities shift throughout life. So if I'm getting this extra hour every day, you know, the way I use it today is going to be different than the way I use it in 10 years. But uh, if you read books that are relevant to what you want to achieve, reading will never be boring and it'll always be useful. And so 
uh, by using that extra hour to read, you can solve whatever problem you're facing at the time. You know, like if I want to learn how to be a better parent, great. There are a bunch of books about that. If you want to learn how to launch a podcast, you can read a book about that. If you want to learn how to, you know, cook a better spaghetti, you can read a book about it. So no matter what you're dealing with, uh, I think reading can kind of help you solve those challenges. And uh, it's probably a productive way to use that extra time. Couldn't agree more. Or in my case, listen, because I think that's something that I wish, if wish I could go back in time, 15 years to my school days and listen to all of the books that I was, you know, trying to slowly read because it's just sped up my learning. It's accelerated my kind of thirst for knowledge because now I can, yeah, just listen while I'm running or cooking or whatever. So yeah, I think that's a really, really great way to spend the extra hour. Thank you so much, James. As I mentioned so many times throughout this, I'm nodding along. I'm just loving it. I really hope that people enjoyed this episode i'm sure that they will so thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time and if you enjoyed this show then please make sure you check out the book and let us know share it on instagram stories twitter etc and as always rate and review on itunes i really appreciate the support for the show thank you so much for listening and thank you for joining james thank you bye everyone see ya Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 